This is Steve Adubato. More importantly, this is Lessons in Leadership, part of the overall Leadership Hour. We're being broadcast on AM 970 in beautiful downtown Broadway, New York City, in the shadow of Wall Street. But we're taping our studio uh, over in New Jersey at East Main Media. And my colleague, Mary Gamba, after I gave that geography lesson, you are unimpressed? I am so impressed, Steve. I know that you know your way around the city and New Jersey. You're very good at traveling. And you're very good at traffic on the Garden State Parkway as you spend your time being frustrated. But you're productive when you're on the parkway. I'm very productive. I uh, check my email, make phone calls, and just make the most of it. And text all the time Mm -hmm. you're driving, right? Absolutely. Stop. She's joking. She doesn't do those (laughs) things. So if you just join us on the Leadership Hour, we're on AM 970 every Sunday at 2 p.m. You can also catch our podcast. Before we are joined by our good friend Tim Hogan down at Hackensack Meridian Health, Mary, set up folks so they know how to really get this terrific leadership podcast and radio show Mm -hmm. and learn from it. Absolutely. So if you're listening on the radio, you can catch our other podcasts by subscribing on Apple Podcast as well as on Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD, that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, listen, one of the things I love about doing the Leadership Hour and, and this particular side of it, let's let people know the second half of the Leadership Hour after Lessons in Leadership is a show we do called State of Affairs out of NJTV Studios, our partners at PBS in Newark, New Jersey. That is a program that features state leaders talking about critically important issues. And Mary and I, over the course of our taping today, we're going to be talking a lot about presidential leadership, leadership in government and high-level positions, particularly during a crisis. We should disclose we're taping this program in the middle of a hurricane situation. It'll air after. And talk about leadership in a time of crisis, whether in the Bahamas or Florida or anywhere on the East Coast that hopefully will be missed by this. So this is a guy who has dealt with a lot of crises over the years. Let's introduce our good friend and colleague, Tim Hogan. Tim is the president Care Transformation Services at Hackensack Meridian Health. Good to talk to you, Tim. Good morning, Steve and Mary. How are you? We're doing great. Hey, Tim, listen, uh, by way of background, describe Hackensack Meridian Health. It's not just a hospital, if you will. It's a network. It is a network of over 17 hospitals that are composed of specialty hospitals, children's hospitals, community hospitals, tertiary care centers, and quaternary hospitals. So we have over 300 satellite sites in New Jersey, we are a $6.5 billion entity with over 35,000 team members and 7,500 associated physicians. And that being said, we've worked with Tim for well over a decade. Tim brought our company, Stand and Deliver In, a little over 10 years ago to do leadership development. And we've continued to do leadership development and are currently doing something called the Physician Leadership Academy at Hackensack Meridian Health. And Tim has really been the architect of that. Tim, here's the question devil's advocate. We're dealing with physicians who are head of surgery, head of departments, chief medical officer, top people in their field. If they become the best physicians, the best surgeons, graduating the top of their class in medical school, why the heck do they have to be trained in leadership? Aren't they already natural leaders? You know, in many ways they are. And there's a lot of qualities that standout physicians like you're describing bring to the table. But when you get over into the administrative side of the operation, you get over into really practicing leadership in an organization that has a wide bandwidth that deals with programmatic growth and service growth. And you're taking that physician out of the OR where they're really the captain of their ship and they have final say 
and you put them in an environment where it's participative, where other people have voices, where there may not be the same vision in that room that individual may have. There's a lot of negotiating that goes on. There's a lot of interplay in terms of relationships. There's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of work toward the middle. And physicians aren't classically trained to work toward the middle. As I said before, they're trained to basically be leaders. They're trained to be a team of one, and they're trained to make their decisions. Tim Hogan, what does it mean, a team of one? I'm confused. They're a team of one. Physicians really are individuals who primarily work alone, although they have a small team with them in ORs or on the floors of hospitals or in their offices. But, you know, they're making decisions personally about how they're going to treat patients. They don't have big teams and organizations. We have a lot of people that work with us and facilitate broadband decision making. So physicians are really different in terms of the way they were brought up. When I was trained to be an administrator, I was trained to work with a whole host of people with different views. I was taught that I was going to go into a room and there were going to be a lot of potential outcomes or decisions that could be made. And I was also taught that compromise was going to be the way to basically get to good decision-making. So what's interesting is Tim's been leading both at Hackensack Meridian Health and also in volunteer organizations. He's been very involved. By the way, real quick, Tim, some of the volunteer activities you've been involved in to help not-for-profits who don't have the money, frankly, to be training their leaders, but you've helped as a board member. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm currently a board member of the community YMCA, the food bank. I'm currently the president of the Mammoth Council of the Boy Scouts of America, involved in several civic communities in and about Red Bank, where I'm from, including, uh, you know, my church, obviously, the Red Bank, social services, and, and other community events. So one of the big things that I've done over the years is really stay involved in the community because it really helps me connect to the organization that I work with and understanding what the community's needs are and what the organization I work for needs to provide to the community. Steve Adubato here on the Leadership Hour Lessons in Leadership with my colleague, my co-host, Mary Gambo, where I'm with Tim Hogan from Hackensack Meridian Health. Real quick, Tim, 30 seconds on this. Is being involved in the community and making a difference where you don't get paid as a volunteer part of leadership? Oh, my gosh, yeah. It's a critical part of it. I mean, it helps keep you connected. It helps you to understand what's important. It creates relationship with people in the community. That's what community is all about. All too often as business leaders or leaders of organizations, we may think we have the answers. We may think we know what people need. And most of the time, unless you connect with people, you have no idea really what's important. So it's really a staple diet in terms of what you need as a leader to be successful in your organization. So let's get into the weeds a little bit. Tim and I with Mary and the great team on the HR side at Hackensack Meridian Health are constantly working on our curriculum in terms of this leadership academy that we develop. And every year we change it, we improve it, we add things to it. So now we're focusing more on storytelling and leadership. It wasn't even in the curriculum a couple of years ago when we started. Tim, you're a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. My wife tells me my stories go on too long, and she's not sure what the point is sometimes. Steve, I'm telling you that, too. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so Tim. Am I, hey, so am uh... Mary, is the uh, contract signed? Uh, so... Not yet. <laughs> hey, Tim, what's the connection between, quote, really compelling, concise, powerful storytelling and being a motivational leader? You know, I think that's what it's all about. All too often, I think I sit in meetings and I listen to people talk about how important data is, and they have to have data to drive decision-making, what have you, and certainly that's important, but there's a soft side to being a leader, and I find that to be the most interesting and compelling thing that I do, which is developing relationships, getting to know people, understanding what's important to them, understanding what they value, making them feel appreciated 
hearing their story about what got them to where they are and where they want to go. At the same time, they need to understand my story. They need to understand what my interest is and what our organization's interest is. And the best way to do that is by providing good examples or motivating examples of how we're going to get there as a team to accomplish the goals that we have. So storytelling is incredibly important. It lets people know that you've been there. It lets people know there's a path to get there. It lets people know that there's unique ways to work through issues. And it's really a motivating tool to get to the end zone in terms of getting things done. So you motivate, you inspire, you tell stories, you try to get people engaged, involved, and work to their maximum capacity. But at the same time, Tim, you've been in leadership managerial positions for a couple of decades plus. You've had to let people go, correct? Correct. Here's the interesting question for a leader. You have someone on the team, well-liked by others, gets along with others, Others have fun being with that person, but that person, frankly, just isn't productive enough. He or she is not adding to the mix in very competitive times, and he or she will not, cannot step up, whatever one it is, I don't really know. And they've got to, as Jim Collins says in his great book, Good to Great, you got to get them off the bus. You've had to escort people off the bus. Hard, easy, what? It's never easy. It's very difficult, and you know, I, I've said over the years that anybody that really enjoys doing that shouldn't be involved in leadership at all. It's difficult because I think all of us as leaders want people to succeed. I think that if we're good leaders, we try to motivate those people. I think we try to help them learn. I think we try to do whatever we can and provide them with all we have in our toolbox to help them be successful. But at some point, if they're not going to be successful, I think you've got to be honest with people. I think you've got to explain to them from a professional standpoint why they're not meeting the expectations of myself or the organization. I think they've got to realize that we gave them every opportunity to be successful. And then I think we've got to provide them with an opportunity to leave the organization and get on with their life. I quote all the time, Colin Powell, in my interview with him several years back, said, Steve, don't ever forget, great leaders, when they make tough decisions, sometimes have to piss people off. They're pissed at you, Tim. What are you going to do with that? You want to be liked. You're a popular guy. I've seen the folks around you in your hometown, but there are people who are pissed at you because you made a tough call. You worry about it? I don't worry about it at all. I sleep very well at night. You know, I'd love to be loved by everybody. That'd be great. But I can tell you that great leaders have people who don't like them. Great leaders probably have pissed people off over the years or quote unquote made enemies, but they've made hard decisions. They've had the courage to go places that other people don't go. If you want to be liked by everybody, don't ever try to get into an organization and become a top leader because that will wow. never happen. It's interesting, without getting too deep here, Tim, you continue to advocate for this Leadership Development Academy. And let's say there were some who are no longer with the organization that weren't convinced. And you just kept pushing and pushing and persuading and controlling. And we're very fortunate to be able to have that arrangement and that partnership. But why do you keep pushing when sometimes other folks are like, nah, we don't need to do leadership development, but you never stopped. You were persistent. That part of leadership? It is part of leadership. I think part of being a good leader is being mature enough to step back from yourself. And there have been many times with many situations where I've made a decision when I was pushing something that maybe I was coming on too strong, that perhaps I didn't have the right perspective, that perhaps my point of view was a bit jaded and, and I needed to basically work toward the middle or compromise. With respect to leadership, I always felt very strongly about it because, as I said before, I'm getting to be an old man and I think the world before me is changing very quickly. And I even look at my organization and this industry in general, and like I said before, it's becoming very data-driven. People are looking at data and making decisions 
on what we're going to do and how we're going to take care of people in our case. And as I said before, I think it's incredibly important that you really start to examine the soft side of how great leaders operate and how they motivate people and move organizations forward. And I think that's all through relationships. I think that's through good communication. I think that's through looking at people and helping them get the best out of what they've got. And in turn, your organization will be more successful when you identify people like that, when you motivate them, when you train them, when you grow them, and when you give them opportunities to take responsibility and run with it. Finally, Tim, leadership is not for everyone, and it's not for the faint of heart. Right. Leadership is not for the faint of heart. Tim, uh, not only uh, do Mary and I and the team at AM970 and East Main Media, our production team, want to thank you for joining us, but the other part of it is, is personal and professional. Thank you for having the faith in our organization, Stand and Deliver, to come in year after year and provide leadership development, individual performance coaching, and try to make a difference with people who are, frankly, saving lives every day, physicians and others in the healthcare field, you and your colleagues at Hackensack Meridian Health. So I want to thank you, Tim, and wish you all the best. Stephen, Mary, I want to thank you, too. You know, as you said before, you've been part of our family, first at Meridian Health and now at Hackensack Meridian Health for over 10 years. You've helped us train hundreds of managers, supervisors, senior administrators and physicians over the years. And I couldn't have done this without great partners like you in terms of putting together a physician leadership program that undoubtedly will continue to grow over the years and make our organization stronger and provide some outstanding physicians with the opportunity to help lead an organization like this. Mary, can we make sure we take that clip and use it as a promotional (laughs) testimonial? (laughs) I was just giving Steve a thumbs up, Tim. Hey, Tim, thanks, my friend. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. That was Tim Hogan from... Hackensack Meridian Health. He's the president of what's called Care Transformation Services. In a few seconds, we're going to be joined by our good friend Steve Baker from the New Jersey Education Association. He's the head of all communications. Quick follow-up on Tim. I was writing, and it's funny, I don't know how you always seem to remember what they say, and I'm always jotting things down to just trigger my memory. Because I'm brilliant. You are brilliant, yes, and you have that photographic memory. I don't. And and humble, but go ahead. (laughs) And humble. But I had just written down one of the key things that Tim had given us was that great leaders have the courage to go places others won't go. And that, to me, just resonated because it is about courage. It is about taking risks, and it's not always staying inside the box and, and staying in a safe place. Sometimes you do have to be courageous, and that really resonated with me. And some people don't love it. No. Stay in your box. Yep. Stay in your lane. And that's okay. And stop making waves. Yeah. What is that? That's okay for some. Yeah, well, you don't compete, succeed, and stay in the marketplace. Brian, who's in the studio, how many conversations have we had recently about, hey, what about if we try something different? What about if we have a totally new approach? What about if we look at the marketplace changing all around us and other people want to stay where they are? Eh, Well, sorry. This bus, this ship... This team's moving pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Quick well, break. we'll take a quick break, quick and break. then we're going to come Let's back. Let's do some promotional stuff. Tell everyone about my book and stuff they can get, yeah, free absolutely. articles. There's free articles. They can go to our website, stand-deliver.com. We have a whole archive of free articles up there. There's links where they can go right to your Facebook page, which is Steve Adubato, Ph.D. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. And, of course, if you're listening on AM970, if you want to hear our other podcasts, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, as well as on Google Play. Great. Let's take a little bit of a break, and then we'll be joined by Steve Baker from the New Jersey Education Association. 
This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership on the Leadership Hour. I'm Steve Adubato. Make sure you stay tuned on the second half hour of the Leadership Hour for our public television program, State of Affairs, which talks to state leaders, the governor, the president of the Senate, the speaker of the assembly, the head of the education committees, budget committees, policymakers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. They're the people who make a difference every day as the leaders in the state of New Jersey. That's state of affairs. But right now, everything you ever wanted or needed to know about leadership and related topics, we're going to explore with our good friend Steve Baker, who's director of communications for the New Jersey Education Association. How you doing, Steve? Doing great, Steve. How are you today? Great. Thanks for joining us. Let me uh, disclose also that the New Jersey Education Association is one of the largest, most significant underwriters of the work we do on public broadcasting, particularly around education, education policy, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, we're going to a convention. Steve, set up that convention real quick, the November Atlantic City. Brian, your team shoots that, right, Brian Berdour? Absolutely. We'll be there. East Main Media is going to be there. Uh, set it up. Why are there thousands of educators that go down to Atlantic City every November? Set it up, Steve. Well, it's the absolute premier professional development opportunity for our members across New Jersey. Over 300 workshops, scores of people demonstrating top skills, new approaches to education. It really is just a fantastic opportunity for our members to improve their professional practice and gain the skills they need to keep our schools number one in the nation. I don't know if you saw yesterday, but just yesterday, Education Week put out a new report showing that New Jersey schools ranked first in the nation. We unseated Massachusetts after four years in second place, and we feel pretty good about that. Good stuff. Congratulations, Steve. Hey, listen, you know, we, we have leaders of all stripes, education, nonprofits, corporate world, government, the arts, everywhere. But I'm curious about something, particularly because this is, as we're taping this day, it'll be heard later on AM 970 and in our podcast. But to fully disclose this as well, I was dropping off our daughter, Olivia, at school going into the fourth grade. Big deal. She has a new haircut, new teacher and some anxiety. And I saw all these teachers out on the lawn of her school, greeting these kids. And shout out to all the great public school educators around the state and the nation. I thought to myself, at the core, teachers slash educators are inherently great leaders. You say, Steve Baker? Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, I'm a public school parent myself, brand new middle schooler, brand new high schooler this week. And so Congratulations. Right, Congrats. Thank you, right there with you. Absolutely. Our members in the classroom, in any position that they hold in the school, really do have to be leaders. They have to shape these young minds. And I think they do a fantastic job of it. In fact, I think our members probably sell themselves short too often. When you see the work they do in whatever position they're in, it's just mind-boggling how capable, how talented they are, and what they're able to get out. You're going to see it with your daughter this year. She's going to enter fourth grade as one person, and she's going to exit fourth grade as an entirely different person. Some of that goes to good parenting, but a lot of that goes to just the fantastic leadership and dedication of her teachers and other educators in her school. 
Mary, all yours. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, I have also an incoming ninth grader, and I also have an incoming senior, so uh, a 12th grader in public schools in Westfield. And just the experience that we've had from kindergarten on up, and just recently we found out that we are getting full-day kindergarten, a little too late for us. but So it shows that the state is moving in the right direction. So it's all about the leadership involved in getting us there. So it's been great. But you know what's interesting, Steve, as Mary's talking about this? By the way, Brian, you did some of the same stuff. Just want to clarify that. Yeah. Shipped off my uh, teenage boy to high school this morning. Shipped off. I like that. <laughs> um, okay. Let him go. So, <laughs> so, But what's interesting, Steve, is what strikes me about not just Atlantic City and the great conference that goes on there, the convention, teacher training. To what degree can you truly teach and coach and mentor teachers beyond learning the curriculum, beyond learning how to, quote, teach – and manage the classroom. How the heck do you teach leadership to educators? Well, education is a fantastic balance of art and science. You have to know the principles. You have to study. You have to be prepared. That's why we advocate for really high standards for even getting the privilege of stepping into a New Jersey public school classroom. But you also have to have a certain something about you that allows you to do that work. What do you think that is, Steve? It's pretty hard to define. It's one of the reasons that we are huge advocates of what we call teacher leadership. In fact, we're uh, getting ready to start a teacher leadership academy here at NJEA. Oh, excuse me, and you haven't told us about this yet? Not that we're looking for a contract, but <laughs> what is it about in all seriousness? Well, really what it's about is developing the leadership potential of our members, our classroom teacher members and others, and then giving them the opportunity to share those skills with their colleagues. One of the tragedies, I think, in education is that the way it's been structured for so long, the only way to move up professionally, so to speak, was to leave the classroom and go into administrative roles. That's great for some people. But we have so many talented leaders and talented educators who care so much and are so passionate about teaching, they want to do more professionally, but they don't want to leave the classroom. We're trying to create a way that they can pursue both of those passions. They can stay in the classroom, they can be excellent at what they do, and they can share that with their colleagues. It's teacher leadership, and we really believe it's the future of leadership development in our public schools. Well, real quick, we're all in, however we can help. But I'm also curious, there are some educators that when you talk to them about leadership, they'll say, no, no, I'm not a leader. Um, the leader is the principal. The leader is the superintendent. The leader is the chairperson of the department. No, no, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. And I don't want to get into some philosophical debate about this. When someone says, I want to go into leadership, they think somehow they have to move from the classroom to an administrative position. But I, there's a great quote that Mary pulled out. Mary, the quote you pulled out, I'm not sure who it's from. Which That one? said the one that leadership is not about a position. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, let me just take a look at that. Come on, let's find this. I'm We're finding the gun. it. I'm finding uh, it before leadership, we go. It, it is an le action. Leadership is an action. Not a position. Not a position. All right. Steve, you say. By the way, Steve Baker from the NJEA. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Leadership is reflected in what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not what's on your business card. It's not what you call yourself. It's what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's why when I look at the work that our members do, and I think this goes throughout public schools. We have leaders working in our cafeterias who are taking action to ensure that children are getting proper nutrition and going above and beyond. We have leaders driving buses who go out of their way to ensure the safety of our students. And we certainly have leaders 
in our classrooms who are innovating, who are taking you know, their own money, their own resources to build up their classrooms, to go a little beyond for their students. So leadership absolutely is a reflection of what you do every day. And I think leadership is also measured by, did anybody come with you? You look at these students at the beginning of the year. You look at students at the end of the year. They've come a long way. They were led there, and it's our members who are leading them and giving them the skills to move forward. So I think absolutely leadership is a state of mind, and leadership is something that our members demonstrate on a daily basis. Well said. You're listening to uh, Steve Baker, the head of all communications at the New Jersey Education Association, Steve Adubato, and my co-host and colleague, Mary Gamba, uh, this is the Leadership Hour. The first part of it is lessons in leadership. Make sure you stay tuned for the second half, State of Affairs. By the way, generously in part underwritten by the New Jersey Education Association. Real quick question before I let you go, Steve. The connection between exceptional leadership and your arena, exceptional communication. Make the link. Well, I'll say right now, I don't think there's ever been a greater need for integrity and leadership in communication. We're at a crisis in our society where people don't have much trust in some of our traditional communication vehicles. They feel they've been betrayed. They feel they've been let down. And so I think that anybody who's given the opportunity, as I have and some others have been, to communicate with the public, we have a real obligation to do that with integrity, to do that in a way that provides meaningful, reliable information to improve the level of public discourse. We can't have effective civil government. We can't have effective civil society without good public discourse. And I think those of us in communications have a real obligation to look beyond some of what's been happening in mass media communication, not your show, of course, but in so many places, unfortunately, and to really lead the way to a better approach to that. It's one of the reasons we're so glad to be able to work with and support your work, uh, public television, public media throughout the state, because we do believe it's just fundamentally critical to the functioning of our society to have reliable, integrity-based communication. And by the way, just to clarify, the New Jersey Education Association has been a longtime supporter of NJTV News. And also, a uh, shout-out to the New Jersey Education Association for a long-time series, 30 seconds on this, Steve, Classroom Close-Up, that for many, many, many years has been featuring educators who are innovative leaders, making a difference every day, and that continues. Where can people find more information on Classroom Close-Up, which was on the air for many years? And we continue on our series to feature that video and also the teachers who and educators who are features. But tell folks where they can find the library, if you will, of this amazing Classroom Close-Up series. Absolutely. You can find that at Classroom Close-Up nj.com or classroomcloseup.com. Either one of those should get you there. And we are very proud of the work that we've done with that. There will be some rebroadcasts on NJTV coming up this year, but anybody can go to the Classroom Close-Up website and find the entire 25-year library of segments that just tell the stories of what our members are doing, what our public schools are doing, all the ways that we are working together to really improve educational outcomes for students. So we're proud of that. We're proud of the ability to tell stories through a lot of media these days. And we're going to continue to do that because we think our schools are full of great stories. We think the public has a right to know that the schools they support are succeeding. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to tell that story. Final point on this, what's interesting is organizations 
and leaders of organizations. Mary and I talk about this a lot as well. And Brian, it's not just a producer and, and someone who understands productions. He's our strategic visionary on this stuff. You have to tell your own story. And we've been talking an awful lot about, yeah, you want to be on this outlet or that outlet, and you want to get news coverage, right, Steve? But sometimes you have to, quote, tell your own story. And that's what NJEA has been doing for years with Classroom Close-Up, telling their own story about our public school educators because you can't guarantee that someone else is going to tell that story. So part of leadership is creating that narrative. Hey, listen, Steve, well done. We thank you not only for joining us on Lessons in Leadership, the Leadership Hour, but also your partnership and your friendship. And we wish you and your colleagues at the NJEA all good things. My pleasure, Steve. We look forward to seeing you down at the convention, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks so much. That was Steve Baker from the New Jersey Education Association. Hey, Mary, quick follow-up. As we kick off a school year, again, this will be heard later, mm-hmm. with, we're taping actually the beginning of September. Yep. We're all getting our kids off to school. Leaders in our public schools, particularly our teachers, deserve mm-hmm. a shout-out. Go ahead. They absolutely do. They spend more time, if you take the hours of a day with our students, especially at the elementary school and middle well, middle school, they switch classes. But in elementary school, they're with that one teacher for how many months? And for better or for worse, we've all had great experiences. We've all had some challenges, I'm sure. But when you really look at the value that they're instilling in our kids, it's God's work. I, I could not do it in a million years. Same here. I could never do it. I, I could just see myself yelling and screaming. I'd be that one. And I just give them the kudos that they deserve. So it's interesting. People sometimes look at educators, particularly in lower grades, elementary school. Oh, you're you're sort of babysitting for these kids. You, you just have to manage them and keep them under control. Yeah, well, that's true. You also have to engage them. You have to inspire them. You have to motivate them. You have to push them harder than they want to push themselves very often. You have to question them when they, frankly, don't step up and do what they need to do. They need to be disciplined at times. Um, I went to Catholic school, so discipline was defined differently back then. That's a lot of leadership. It is, and so much so, we're doing a lot of work right now with Right From the Start, NJ. Uh, right From the Start is really talking about the importance of birth to three years old. Infants and, and toddlers, and by the way, Brian's team, uh, East May Media, actually running that website. Go to... RightFromTheStartNJ.org. Go ahead, Mary. Perfect. And I think that for many people, it's great. In my situation, I had my parents and my husband's parents um, helping to watch my children at that time, zero to three. Uh, But for a lot of parents where both parents are working, they do need to put their child into child care. And having an interactive environment, a very supportive environment, it's been proven, will definitely uh, impact their success or lack thereof in the years to come. So I just think it's really more important than ever that the children get the right start that they need and then that continues on all the way through high school graduation. You know, real, final point real quick because I have a minute left. My dad, um, who's 86, turning 87 this year, dealing with some real health, health issues for a long time, as many uh, older folks are, um, was a public school teacher. He was my public school teacher at Broadway Junior High School back in the 70s. You remember those, Mary? I do. Yeah, I you, do. Were, you were born there. Yeah. So he started to get burned out. He was burned out. He was starting to be, um, had not had a lot of patience for seventh graders. 
and um, he didn't enjoy it anymore. He wasn't doing well anymore, and that's when he knew it was time to get out. And that's when he started a nonprofit organization and became the leader that he became in the city of Newark. But the point I'm making is that you have educators, some of whom were born to do this, others who may be born to do it, and things happen over time. But to keep that momentum, that enthusiasm, that passion, that positive attitude, that caring for these kids through all the challenges, man, if that's not a part of great leadership, I don't know what is. So uh, that's it. That's all I got. That's good. All right. So, I mean, I thought you'd have, I thought you'd say something really nice. Well, I thought the time was over. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, We have a big clock behind us. That's why we're looking at it. This has been the Leadership Hour. Uh, The first half is Lessons in Leadership. Make sure you stay tuned for State of Affairs coming to you uh, that I host that show from NJTV Studios, the Alice Varis NJTV Studio in Newark. Mary, uh, you want to say goodbye to everyone? Yeah. Goodbye, everyone. Another great show. Brian, you want to say goodbye? Goodbye, Gracie. But that's what? what are you, George Burns? Get out of here. Uh, Steve Adubato, see you next week on the Leadership Hour. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Tim Sullivan. At the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, we work to drive New Jersey's economic growth and innovation to help build stronger communities within the state. That's why we're proud to support programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by Seton Hall University. Come see what great minds can do. Valley Bank. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority. NJM Insurance Group. Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. And by ADP, a comprehensive provider of human resources technology and services. Promotional support provided by Meadowlands Chamber, building connections, driving business growth. And by NJBiz, all business, all New Jersey. State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio in Newark. It is our honor and pleasure to introduce for the first time on State of Affairs, Beth Simone Novak. She's Chief Innovation Officer for the great state of New Jersey. Good to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, is this, this, by the way, we're doing a whole series on the future of innovation. Check out our website, which will come up. You can see all the programs we're doing around innovation. There is a government post about innovation, A, and B, is it the first time ever? It's the first time ever for New Jersey and one of the first states ever to have a chief innovation officer, so yes. Why have we waited this long to do this? Oh, well, a lot of states, you know, haven't done this yet. Many people haven't done it. We've thought for a long time, I would say at least a decade, about the importance of technology in government, making sure that we have computer systems that work, websites that work, that we have effective cybersecurity, and we do all of that in this state as well. But the idea of a different role, a role that really thinks about how do we use technology, data, and innovation Mm. to achieve our core policies, be they economic development, educational advancement improvement, better health care. I think there's an important role for technology and innovation and data to play Mm -hmm. in helping to advance our policy priorities as well. Now, you have national and international experience as well. What always fascinates me, and I tried to study this and understand it from a basic public policy point of view, but when the healthcare.gov website did not work in October of 2000 and, I don't know, check the date, (laughs) um, 10-11, 
I thought to myself, wait a minute, there's a policy, but for the policy to work, the website had to work. Absolutely. It didn't work. There were a lot of snafus. And I thought, what did, I often think about this, what did people in government, around government, learn from that? And what does it have to do with the future of innovation and technology? I think you're absolutely right that the healthcare.gov debacle, if we can call it that at the time, well, a terrible thing was in fact a crisis that we've taken advantage of. How so? Well, of course, we saw at that point that you can't think about technology as an afterthought. You can't wonder about how do we write the legislation and then only later think about how do we implement it in practice. You need to have the lawyers and the technologists, the data scientists and the policy people sitting down side by side at the same time to talk about how do we use these new tools that are available to us to actually implement the intent of our legislation, first of all. And second of all, there are many things that we can do without legislation where we can simply create better tools, better apps, more available data that helps to achieve the same purpose. One example. So one example, right now in the state of New Jersey, we do have legislation and appropriations around better workforce development. But at the same time, one of the things that my office is doing together with the Department of Labor and Workforce Development is thinking about how do we put tools in the hands of the unemployed, especially the long-term unemployed. Tools? You keep using saying tools. What do we mean Tools. Well, we're talking about things like uh, a reminder on your mobile phone that tells you what do you need to do today to help improve and accelerate your job search. We don't have to send people, though it's useful to send people also to a place, an office, a government office in the state of New Jersey. But given the technology that we have in our hands, imagine the ability to give somebody virtual counseling and mentoring via their phone or via their computer from somebody who has expertise in their field, who has expertise in job searching, and can help bring you that service where you sit. Imagine using your mobile phone or your watch to tell you, hey, get off the couch today and uh, do your resume, get off the couch today and network with people, That's giving the role you those of reminders. That's the role of government to drive that? So you are, I get the implication of the question, which is that a lot of this technology comes from and is developed by the private sector. Yes, but what's but the role what, of government what, if the private sector is responsible for developing it, R&D, the role of government is? So the role of government is, I think, a number of things. Number one, making sure that these tools are accessible and affordable to everybody, not just affordable That's to the people. That's a policy question. It's a policy question. It's a practical question, Economic which question. is, if I'm a software company, I may be interested in selling my tools to the people who can most afford to buy them or watch my advertising. From the government standpoint, we want to ensure that everybody has access to these benefits and these tools, not just people who are in the 1% mm. or the 10%, number one. Uh, number two, making sure that we have wide distribution. And number three, I think uh, making sure that the tools that we develop and design are really serving the needs of the people, not simply serving the needs of the companies who design them. Beth, let me ask you this. Our production company, together yeah. with our, our colleagues and friends in public broadcasting, have lots of relationships, partnerships, collaborations um, with higher ed institutions. Yes. You do as well. What's the connection between higher ed and innovation in the state? Well, we have, first of all, one of the most educated states in the nation. We have a tremendous number of educated people, particularly in sciences and in engineering. We have great talent. In fact, the greatest asset we have in the state are the residents of the state itself. And those people are often in our universities, whether they're faculty or students or staff. So in fact, after I leave here, I'm heading to one of our universities in the state precisely to go talk about how we can take the supply of talent in the university, students, faculty, et cetera, and match that with the needs and demands and challenges that we have in the state. So a lot of what we're trying to do, knowing that we can't from a small office sitting in Trenton, that we can't do everything ourselves, is to mm -hmm. connect the talent that we have to the challenges that we're facing. Just 
one quick example also. Sure. Last year, on the same day that I took office last August. August 2018. August took 2018. Office. Is that right? Yes. Uh, we <laughs> Does it also... seem longer? <laughs> I'll leave that alone. Go ahead. <laughs> it seems shorter. It's, it seems shorter and longer, depending on the day of the week. Uh, we also launched a project called Research with NJ that my colleagues Research, Research with, with NJ, which is? which is a catalog essentially uh, of all of, beginning to be all of, not there yet, um, but a large number of faculty experts, academic experts across the universities of the state in an effort to give greater access for companies, for government, and for universities themselves to that talent across universities. So whether I'm a professor working on, let's say, smart cities that wants to find colleagues to collaborate mm. with to apply for a grant across universities, or I'm a company looking for a faculty expert, the idea is to use technology to make that expertise more accessible and more available. And that's some of what my office does, is try mm. to go around to our universities and to link the talent that we have, the very innovative talent, and match that to opportunities. There is a program called the um, New Jersey Innovation Skills Accelerator, yes. is that what it is, training program? I mean, it's, it's got a long title. What is it, and why does it matter to people watching on State of Affairs? In just this month in June, uh, we launched something called the Innovation Skills Accelerator. This is a free program online aimed first at the workforce of the state of New Jersey, but available to everybody, whether they work for towns or cities, whether they're in the private sector, universities, or just individuals sitting at home. It's an introductory course to thinking about how do we use new technology, how do mm. we use data, how do we use new ways of working and thinking, like consulting with people, asking people, talking to residents, to change how we work for the better in order to solve problems more quickly. The goal of this is to ensure that our 70,000 70, public servants in New Jersey, first and foremost, are using new technology to become more effective at solving public problems, working with and talking to and collaborating with residents and using data. Beth Simone. Novak is Chief Innovation Officer in the state of New Jersey. This is part of a series we're doing on the future of innovation in the state and nationally as well. Check out our sister program, Think Tank. We'll deal with it nationally as well. Beth, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Stay right there. This is State of Affairs. This is NJTV. We'll be right back. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. We're, in fact, coming to you for a State of Affairs special segment in the uh, northern section of Camden. We're actually coming to you from the Camden Lutheran housing operation. We're pleased to enjoy and uh, be joined by our good friend Chris Calori, CEO, Cooper's Ferry Partnership. Good to see you, Chris. Good to see you, Steve. You know the Camden community very well. What's going on today that is different from just five years ago? Three things. One, uh, the neighborhoods in Camden have never been more safe than they've been today, at least going back 50 years. Number two, the K-12 through education system is more stable than it's been in recent memory. Just to give you two quick examples, graduation rate today is 69%. In 2012, it was 49%. So uh, what you're, and the third thing is, the number of companies that are moving in here are uh, more than they've ever been, and that is primarily because of the tax credit uh, program, but equally important, there is a belief among residents and business leaders 
that this city is at an inflection point, a good inflection point. You know, to, to be clear and to clarify things, Cooper's Ferry Partnership that Chris will explain is involved in a lot of development. Our team's going to go out and shoot some footage of some of those projects. What is the initiative? How long has it been around? And what are we going to see? Cooper's Ferry Partnership is a uh, private nonprofit. It, we're a community development and economic development nonprofit that's been around for 34 years. Uh, we have been the primary nonprofit, along with others, uh, that work with foundations, governments, and corporations to make sure things like park projects are built, uh, road projects are built, and to make sure that we provide a platform for companies to move into Camden. Okay, so how hot is, okay, you got, you got an economic development thing going on, you got a lot of activity, you're gonna see that footage, but we're in the northern section of Camden. As we walked onto the street, there's a, lot, there's a jackhammer working, we tried to get them to stop, but they said, no, we got things to do, this is Camden, we're trying to build the community. This is a particularly challenging area, um, economically disadvantaged, we're actually doing an initiative with our friend uh, Pino Rodriguez, who heads up the initiative, the Block Supporter Initiative. Not as big as yours as a nonprofit, but they're making a difference block by block. But that's the story about Camden. Uh, this isn't about one individual or one organization that is helping the city move forward. It is a collective effort. The, the bottom line uh, for, for people on the ground is this city and the residents of the city, like Pino Rodriguez, have never lost faith in where the city can be. And the fact that we're able to realize the dreams of generations that have not seen the prosperity uh, reflects on the commitment by individuals across a broad spectrum, whether it is political, whether it is business, or whether it's resident-driven programs like the one that Pino is heading. That's what's making a difference. So what I'm suggesting to you is, unlike perhaps other cities in the state, there is no daylight between political leaders, business leaders, and residents on what needs to happen in the city to make sure it becomes uh, more uh, uh, prosperous. Chris, let me ask you this. Crime is a serious issue in this community. Public education, a serious issue in challenging this community. With the crime rate being what it is, and it's, it is in fact technically going down, we'll talk about that more, but the education system, again, improving, but not where it wants and needs to be. Graduation rates, not where anyone wants them to be. <clears throat> How challenging is it to engage in successful economic development with the crime situation and the public school situation? I think the focus really has to be on intergenerational poverty. What does that mean? That means you have to make sure that the fundamentals of the city are working. That means that we gotta make sure the neighborhoods are safe. You gotta make sure that people have an opportunity to succeed, both in getting an education and in getting a job. That's how I think you build a stable community. The fact that the progress that has happened in the last five and a half years is measurable uh, and it has been meaningful demonstrate that we are at a very special point in this city. It, and I want to be clear, from 1968 to almost 2007, the city was socially and economically isolated. That is Define isolated. As in, as in the only investments that were coming in were the state uh, deciding to build a prison on the waterfront. Uh, the only investments that were coming in were what I would call socially unacceptable investments. That was what was happening then. And what I'm suggesting to you is the residents uh, have 
always had a belief that this city deserved the kind of opportunity that we're finally seeing. That's how you get the crime rates down. That's how you make sure you build an education system that reaches every child in the city. And that's what I think is happening. So this isn't a trend line. This is an absolute data-driven uh, analysis that points to objectively where the city is today and where it's going. So you speak about where it's going, Chris. You know the city better than most. Five to 10 years from now, describe Camden. I think five And by the Camden, there's lots of different communities. That's right. Describe Camden in its totality five to 10 years from now. So I think five to 10 years from now, two, to things, two things are gonna happen. One is the state currently subsidizes most of the city and school district uh, to the tune of 75 to 80%. I actually think within 10 years or soon thereafter, you're gonna see a stabilization of the, the tax system which is, as you know, foundational to making sure any system, any city survives and grows. What you mean one. is that the rateables will be there. That's right, because the businesses that are coming in are going to begin paying property taxes that there is no, for, as I said, for 50 years, there weren't any tax-paying entities that were moving into the city. So the city became more reliant on state government. So what we're, what we're suggesting is, for once, we're building a foundation for taxation. Uh, and to make sure there's revenue attached to it. You bullish on Camden? I am. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> otherwise, the commitment that the residents have made wouldn't be realized. And that's the thing that I want you to take away from this. Folks like Pino and the folks like the fo uh, uh, Betsy at uh, Camden Lutheran We'll be talking to Betsy in just a couple minutes. Go ahead. Right. They are the people that are driving the change. And, and, I, and I think it's often lost because uh, it isn't... Uh, quite doesn't uh, doesn't get the kind of amplification that other projects perhaps but huge. get. But it is huge because if you're able to change the narrative on a neighborhood level, then you change it on a citywide level, and that's what the promise of the city is. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Once again, we're joined by our good friend Carlos Rodriguez, President, CEO, Community Food Bank of New Jersey. Tell folks, Carlos, what the food bank is and why it matters so much. Well, the food bank is the primary uh, fighter against hunger uh, throughout New Jersey, and we're doing it two ways. First, making sure that we can take care of that immediate need for food, but also looking uh, and trying to solve why that need exists in the first place. So let's do this. We're doing this program in the summer of 2019. Summer hunger is? Summer hunger is over 400,000 children in our state that rely on school meals, whether it be breakfast or lunch. And during the summer, those meals are gone. So families are working hard, uh, not having that school breakfast or school lunch uh, that they relied on or counted on during the school year and now have to fend for themselves What's during the, the summer. The impact is, you know, we're, our, the, our response is more of 100,000 meals every summer that we're helping to produce and creating awareness around where those meals uh, can exist in areas of high need. You know, what I'm curious, you and I were talking right before we got on the air, <clears throat> that, and by the way, we're involved in a public awareness initiative with the Community Food Bank to talk about food insecurity and related issues. One of the things that struck me, some of our higher ed partners uh, and folks who work with at Seton Hall and at 
um, also at Berkeley, is that, you know, food insecurity affects college students in a certain way. A, how are college students affected? And B, what are colleges doing together with the food bank to deal with it directly to help their students? Well, I mean, first, you, get, you have to think that 900,000 people in New Jersey are in need of food, are food insecure. Eight plus million folks, 900,000. Exactly. That's close to 10% of the population. That's almost everyone. So to find, to, to realize that there is need in college campus shouldn't be a surprise. Hunger exists in every community and throughout every demographic in our state. Whose responsibility is that? That's all of our responsibility. It's private sector, it's charitable sector, it's government sector coming together because our state will not thrive if hunger exists. So some colleges are in fact, they have food pantries right on campus, right? So since about 2014, we've been working with various colleges to help them start a food pantry, to support the food pantry, and to help them understand what else can be done for their college population. Uh, many students just struggle, for, especially first-generation students, just to get into school and to manage the reality of and the balance of, of paying for going to school and paying for How do you get them life. to do it? Because I know the Berkeley folks, actually in Newark, on the Newark campus, I, literally a mile from here, have it. How do you, you get them to do it? See, it starts with awareness. And in many cases, the awareness comes from within. Uh, so once we started promoting, I mean, we learned everything from talking to our neighbors. So we found a neighbor that was in a college, uh, in college going to local pantries. One thing led to another about five years ago, and now we have over 16 programs that we've helped start or support throughout the state. How do you get students, because uh, the other part of this is we found out there are community service initiatives where students are involved in what? So most of, them, yeah, most, of the, most of the college uh, campuses have students that are involved either in food drives, helping to pick up the food, helping to actually run the pantry. Uh, and, and some of our more advanced models, you're helping to coordinate services within those pantries. Because chances are, if you're, if you're in need of food, there's probably other things you're eligible for and are not aware of. Well, let's talk about this whole question. Because we're talking about these food problems, and I'm looking at my notes because Jackie Heyer and I were talking about this, and we're like, how do we have this huge problem with food insecurity? There are so many people struggling to find healthy food, and then you got food waste. That's exactly Make right. sense of that for well, us. Well, because the problem of hunger in our community, in our society even, is not a lack of food. It's a lack of access to food. And so there's this disparity that we actually have a lot of food. We actually have food waste as a byproduct of that. What we don't have is people with the financial means to go and shop when the food is ready and consumable. So one of the things that we do um, is make sure, and we've been in this business for over 45 years, the food, the anti-food waste build, uh, business, making sure that before food becomes waste, we can rescue it and we can put it in the hands of our New Jerseyans who need it most. You know, uh, you're a nonprofit, we're a nonprofit, NJTV is a nonprofit, but we have to run lean, right? We have to raise money all the time. Talk about the role that you and your organization have to play when it comes to getting corporations to care about this when they're saying, wait a minute, we got bottom line issues, we're a publicly traded company sometimes, we got stock price, and then you're saying I gotta be involved in Community Food Bank, talk about that. Well, the great news is in New Jersey, if you're a major corporation, you're involved with the Community Food Bank of New Jersey. And you should be, because you're not going to have a thriving workforce. You're not going to have a consumer base. You're not going to have an educated um, uh, population if they're hungry. All of these things, if you think about the, the fundamental basic thing that food is, you're not going to uh, develop if you're a child. You're not going to learn whether you're a adult, young adult or a child. And you're not going to have the strength to be the smartest workforce that you can be 
So this is very much an issue that crosses across all sectors. And by the way, Valley, one of the folks that are they're doing that actually helped create a an initiative? Yeah, they're Valley, uh, one of our newest uh, funders and partners, uh, and they, they came in to support our workforce development initiative. What does that mean? That is, we have a 15-week program where we teach uh, uh, adults life skills and culinary arts while they're learning, and then they get job placement. And while they do that, they help us prepare the meals for the after-school programs and the summer meals programs we spoke about. Because how does, how does what we're describing right now in other industries actually help the quote-unquote root causes of hunger and food insecurity? Well, our workforce development uh, piece is clear. Uh, so we're taking, we're not just providing the food, we're, we're, we're teaching, we're doing the proverbial teach you how to fish. Uh, and then, you know, with job placement rates is over 90%, uh, the impact is big, not only for the individual, but for the community as well. The other thing that we do is we connect families with resources. So SNAP uh, outreach is something that we Tell folks, SNAP is the SNAP is formally for... known as food stamps, right. right? That's the easiest way to describe it. And so many working families uh, and individuals are eligible and don't know that they're eligible because it's, for, it's primarily designed for working families. But when you fall in need all of a sudden, the last thing you think is that that program is for you. You know, before I let you out here, we talked about uh, the problem on college campuses and other places. Young children. We have a serious initiative called Right from the Start NJ that looks, like inf looks at infants and toddlers and the challenges they have, things they need. How, does, how do these issues affect that population? By the way, put up the Right from the Start NJ. Here, team's already six steps ahead. Go ahead. So one in seven children are, suffer from food insecurity in New Jersey. Uh, in counties like Atlantic, Cape May, and Cumberland, it's as high as one in five children don't know where the next meal is coming from. So if you think about a child who goes to school uh, on an empty stomach and, or wakes up on an empty stomach. How, is she, how can he or she learn? Well, exactly right. How do they develop during those early developmental uh, years? Uh, so it's a critical part. It's really the fuel that helps us grow, that helps us uh, be as product, productive individuals in our society. And we all have invested interest in that. A few seconds left. Do you sense cause that, that we're more committed, we care more than we had in the past, have in the past? About these issues? I'm hopeful. Seconds. I am absolutely hopeful. We have commitments from the private sectors, from individuals, and now from the government sector. We have renewed interest. Um, very um, um, proud to be working with our legislature and our governor on a slate of bills that are comprehensive in their approach and making sure that there's funding available. But there's a lot of work to do. Let, absolutely. And there's also a lot of uh, programming to be done on this. Uh, Carlos will be back in the late, in late 2019. Give us an update. Talk about those legislative initiatives. Carlos Rodriguez, President and CEO of Community Food Bank of New Jersey. Thank you for joining us on State of Affairs. I'm Steve Arabato. This is NJTV's Agnes Vera Studio in Newark. We'll check you out next time. State of Affairs with Steve Arabato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by Seton Hall University, Valley Bank, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, NJM Insurance Group, Choose New Jersey, and by ADP. Promotional support provided by Meadowlands Chamber and by NJBiz. NJM Insurance Company has been serving New Jersey policyholders for more than 100 years. But just who are NJM's policyholders? They're the men and women who teach our children, the public sector employees who maintain our infrastructure, the workers who craft our manufactured goods, and New Jersey's next generation of leaders, the people who make our state a great place to call home. 
NJM. We've got New Jersey covered. I could feel my lungs fill with oxygen, and I got my life back. The sharing network means to me hope, life, and everything. The sharing network was a lifeline to me when I really needed it. We are an organ procurement organization. The core purpose of the New Jersey Sharing Network is to save and enhance lives. To honor those who gave. Pay tribute to those who received. Offer hope to those who continue to wait. And remember the lives lost while waiting. For the gift of life. <laughs>